Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey delves into the last act of the Exodus story and examines Moses' relationship with God. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. All right, open your Bibles. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Um, we are coming to the end of our, ser- of our series in the book of Exodus. And today we're actually going to cover the last bit of narrative um, in the book of Genesis. And it's one that you guys, if you've been around the charismatic church for a little while, you've definitely heard of. It's the whole passage where Moses cries out, show me your glory. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that to some degree. Show me your glory. We sing songs, show me your glory. Uh, and today we're going to unpack it. Um, I'm actually really excited about the message today because um, if you've been following this series at all, one of the things that you will know is that we have done a very good job of making Moses out to be a complete doofus. We have highlighted all of Moses's issues, right? If you've been with us in this series, here's what you've figured out is though Moses is a legend, though he is a hero of the faith, though we have entire veggie tale seasons dedicated to the man, he actually messes up almost more than anybody else that I can think of in the Bible. That he's actually, um, when you look in the natural, really quite the failure. And we've done a really good job over the last 18 messages highlighting all the many ways that Moses has failed or misstepped or his immaturity has come to pass. And today is the day that we're going to redeem all of that. Today is the day where we're going to find out why Moses is such a hero, because he is a hero. He is a legend. He is um, somebody who deserves um, quite a bit of credit, but we just haven't touched on it yet. If you um, have been in the series, you know this about Moses, that Moses has um, a major issue where he, ha- he has an anger problem. He has a self-control problem. If you've been with us in the series, you've noticed that Moses has a propensity to get out ahead of God, just like you and me. And though he may have the destination right, he gets the timing wrong. We see that Moses has quite the propensity to argue with God, uh, whether it's out of insecurities, whether it's out of shame and guilt, or whether it's out of fear of man and his um, uh, and, and being afraid of what other people will think about him. We see several times where Moses would argue with God and it would not go over well. The first time would be at the burning bush and God would call him to go back to Egypt to lead his people out of bondage and into the promised land. And Moses, though he hid in the desert for 40 years out of shame and guilt, argues with God and says, no, I am not the man that you're calling. And God eventually relents after like five different excuses that Moses gives and says, fine, if you won't go and speak, I'll raise up somebody else. He says, you're still going to go. You don't have a say so in the matter. He goes, but I'll raise somebody else up to speak for you on your behalf. And that man was Aaron. And if you were with us last week, you saw um, how big of a mistake that was. Moses absolutely should have just said, okay, Lord, sign me up. I'll do what you're asking, whether I get it or not. Because Aaron would be the leader who created the molten calf issue that we've been working through the last couple of weeks. But then we talked about last week that Moses' propensity to argue would get him into even more trouble because God would say, as the golden calf incident is going down, God specifically tells him, hey, leave me alone. Go down from the mountain. Go deal with your people because they are hard-hearted. In other words, they are an entire nation of pharaohs. He goes, goes, you got to deal with them. He goes, I'm going to destroy them in my wrath, Moses. Leave me alone. I'm going to start over with you. And there again, we see Moses come on the scene and he goes, no, Lord, I don't like your method. I don't like, that's not my will. It doesn't matter if that's your will. I want you to keep the people. I want you to not destroy the people, but to have mercy on the people. And he says, okay, then have it your way. And it says that God changed his mind. And here's the idea that we covered last week. And I want to be really clear about this is the promise is still on right? The promise was still on regardless, because remember Moses, God tells Moses, he goes, hey, listen, I'll start over with you. In other words, the promise I made to Abraham to make him a nation, it's still on. I'll just start the promise again all over with you. But here's the deal, guys. God often, his destination is set in stone, but because our relationship with him 
we get to sometimes influence the route to the destination. You guys ever do GPS? There's like several routes you can choose. The destination's the same. You and I, as we begin to engage in relationship with the Lord in prayer, he takes our will into account because he gave us free will. And so he'll fight for our free will. And if we fight for our decision-making long enough, he'll eventually relent and go, okay, fine, have it your way. You choose route number two. I chose route number one. Route number one was better, but you're choosing route number two. The destination is the same. You're still gonna make it into the promised land. That's still where this whole thing is going. Moses has a big issue and he argues with the Lord. He's angry, he's, he's immature. But that's not how he's remembered. How he's remembered in scripture is a hero. How he's remembered in scripture is a dynamic leader. How we think about him is he is truly a legend. And what we're gonna do today is we're gonna put all of his bad and weigh it on the scale against his good. And what we're gonna find is that though his bad outnumbers his good, his good outweighs his bad. Moses does something absolutely remarkable that up until his, up until his day, nobody else had done. And I'm so geeked to talk about it. The message tonight is Moses, the friend that God always wanted the friend that God always wanted. If you remember after the golden calf incident last week, if you continued on reading, Moses would go down out off the mountain after God changed his mind and decided not to um, destroy the nation. Moses would go down and it's really interesting. Um, I don't, I think we actually covered it last week, but if you just read through it um, in Exodus 32, it's fascinating because Moses comes down off the mountain having convinced God, don't destroy your people. And, and at that point, Moses had only ever heard what the people were doing. God told him, right? If you remember, God was like, hey, your people are worshiping a golden calf. It's, this is not good, Moses, right? And he just engages in the, in the intercession right there. But Moses begins to walk down the mountain and all of a sudden you realize it's very different seeing what they're doing and experiencing what they're doing rather than just hearing what they're doing. Because Moses comes down and he actually feels the beat of the drums and, of the, and he hears the chanting and, and he sees the worship happening to this golden calf. And what happens is like the most hypocritical thing possible. Moses begins to get angry in the same way that God was angry and the same way that Moses was like, hey, don't get angry, God, have mercy. Well, now you see Moses is seeing it. He's getting really angry. He takes the very word of God, the 10 commandments that God wrote on tablets and he breaks them in a feat of anger. And then he does the very thing that he asked God to repent of and to change his mind of. He goes and he starts destroying people and he calls forth the Levites. And he says, everyone who's for God, come to me. Everybody who didn't worship the golden calf, come to me. And so the Levites step forward. They say, we're for God. And he goes, great, get your sword because we're going to war. And he kills in that day, 3,000 people who are responsible for um, worshiping the golden calf. And I say tongue in cheek that it's very hypocritical. I think what's really happening is Moses didn't have an image. He didn't really understand the severity of what God understood because he wasn't there to see it. And once he saw it, I think he just, I think he lost his mind. Well, what would happen after that, which we did not cover, is Moses would then go up the mountain and uh, would engage in another form of intercession with the Lord. And um, God would say, okay, here's the deal. I'm I'm not going to be able to dwell in your camp. He says, this whole thing, I, I thought I was going to be able to dwell with you. My hope was that I was going to dwell with you. But because you guys are obstinate, because you're hard-hearted, he goes, I can't actually go in your camp because if I go in your camp, you're all going to die. He goes, you're so hard-hearted. He goes, that if I were to dwell in your midst, you would die. And so Moses, here's what we're going to do. You told me not to destroy the people. You told me not to start over with you. We're on uh, route number B right now. Here's what we're gonna do. I want you to go pack up everything and I want you to tell everybody that they forfeited my presence, that I cannot go down there and be with them. And he says, and I want you to pack your stuff up because the, the promise is still on. I'm still gonna lead you to the promised land. And he reiterates, he goes, I'm gonna deliver you from the Jebusite and the Hittite and the, you know, all the, the Perizzites and the, the, all the different ites in the land. He's like, I'm still gonna do that, don't worry but I'm just not gonna be with you. And so the people go into a quick season of mourning. They're sad about it. They pack up their stuff 
and they began to go towards the promised land. Now, we get in Exodus 33, um, this, well, here's what we're going to do. I'll tell you what, we're going to take Exodus 33 and 34, and we're going to look at four kind of chunks or passages of scripture, right, in each chapter. And we're basically going to go after each passage, I'm just going to give an observation or two. Okay, so we'll do chapter or passage, observation or two, passage, observation or two, and we're going to cover chapters 33 and 34 together because you really need to read them together. So they pack up their stuff. They begin to move. They get to their first destination. They set down for camp, and then we get chapter 33, verse 11, um, or verse 7 through 11, verses 7 through 11. Here we go. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Key being it's outside the camp, it's not in their midst. And it came about that whenever Moses went into the tent, that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Okay, now this is a fascinating passage, and it's one that deeply ministers to me. You've got Moses, he makes this tent of meeting outside of the camp where everybody else is. And when Moses goes over to the tent of meeting to commune with God, to talk with God, to worship God, to fellowship with God, God's spirit would come down like a cloud and everybody else who was over here in their little village, they would look out and they would see God's meeting with Moses because the clouds of the tent and they would come out of their tent and they would begin to worship. And then it says that when Moses was done, there was a guy who lingered, a guy who straggled behind, a guy who was like, yeah, I'm not done yet, Moses, and his name would be Joshua. And so I'm going to give you three observations about this passage that I think are really important for us. Number one, one man's worship of God spurred an entire nation to worship. One man's worship of God spurred an entire nation to worship. All it took for the entire nation of Israel to come outside of their tent and to worship God was to see Moses go and worship God. They saw one man who was bold enough to go and commune with the Lord, and they saw the Lord's presence descend on Moses and on the tent, and that spurred something in their hearts to come outside of their tent and to participate. When all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of their tent. So here's the simple idea. Moses' communion led to others' communion. Moses' communion led to others' communion. Moses' relationship with the Lord inspired and provoked others to have a relationship with the Lord. And here's the deal. There's an application to this that's twofold. One that works really well in the church and one that works really well just in life in general. And the first is this. When you are looking at this application, this principle, as it relates to the church, one man's worship will provoke another man's worship. And it's exactly what John was preaching about there for a few minutes in between worship and the message. There's something that happens when one person gets really free and realizes it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what everybody else says. I'm going to worship the way I want to worship. I'm going to worship the way that's pleasing to the Lord. And I'm going to be free. And here's the deal, guys. There's a, most of the people in this scenario are not the person who's thinking, I want to be really free. There's only one person. It's Moses. Everybody else is just kind of waiting. Like, gosh, I really hope somebody does it. If somebody does it, I'll do it. 
right? And in church, it's actually the same way. Some of you guys, you're, you're afraid to dance. You're afraid to be free in worship. You're afraid of what other people will think. You're afraid if people will judge you. And I'm just going to tell you, we're not going to judge you here. And if somebody judges you, I'd rather have you than them. I'm just telling you, personal preference. Because here's the thing, guys. What we need is a generation of free worshipers. We need it. And if you can't be free to worship here amongst a bunch of people who love God like you love God, then there's no chance that you're going to be free to do it anywhere else. And I just, I got to be honest with you. I'm one of the people in this scenario. I'm not Moses. I'm not the guy who's going to go out there in front of everybody and go have this like amazing encounter with the Lord. But I am the people in the village looking back going, man, I hope somebody does that so I can get free. And I know it sounds really kind of silly, but that's so real. And most of you, you get what I'm saying. You're like, man, if somebody else will just step out, I will follow them. But dang it, I don't want to be the one to step out. And let me just tell you, be the one to step out. Because your worship may be the very thing that inspires somebody else to actually worship in spirit and in truth and in freedom. So in church, the application is very clear. But in life, I think uh, in life, I think, here's the idea. Your communion inspires other people's communion and other people's communion with the Lord inspires your communion. And it's so important that you and I stay ingrained in a godly community who love Jesus, who are seeking after Jesus and who are walking in their own communion with the Lord, just like Moses is, because you are who you hang out with. And I know that's such a cheesy little um, cliche Christian thing that we say, but it is very real. And what we see is all it takes is one person to, to go after Jesus. And now you got a whole nation that are going after Jesus. And it's so important, guys, that you have friends and you have a community of people, whether it's at this church, whether it's at another church, but people that you're doing life with who are actually pursuing the Lord and that that's your primary community. Because what's going to happen, you will find, is as they pursue the Lord and as they, uh, as they start to um, commune with God and they start talking to you about, oh, the Lord said this, and, and you start seeing how closely they walk with the Lord, you can't help but get sparked on the inside and go, man, I really want that. But if you don't have people like that in your life on the regular, if you're only hanging out with people who think very differently than you, that are not pursuing Jesus to any degree, rest assured, it's only a matter of time before you bail. And I've just seen it, man. I've seen it a hundred times and I've seen my own propensity. I do better when I am deeply ingrained uh, in a group of godly, God-fearing, God-loving Christians and I'm listening and watching their relationship with the Lord, and I'm watching the fruit of their life, and it's making me want to be a better Christian. And here's the thing, Hebrews 10 talks about this. Hebrews 10 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, as is the habit of some. He says, but you need to spur one another on to good works and love. Your relationship with the Lord is not just about you. Moses's relationship with the Lord in this scenario is not just about Moses. It's about an entire nation. And so it's really easy for us to be like, oh, it's just me and God. And the thing that matters is just me and the Lord. And I, I need to get right with the Lord for me. And I would say, yes, that's primarily true. But here's the thing. It's not just for you. Guys, we're, we're a spiritual family for real. Now, you may not know the guy across the, the, the aisle over here, but at the end of the day, if you are, if you're saying this is our community, then that means that we are family and I'm relying on you to be pursuing Jesus because there's going to be moments where I don't want to pursue Jesus, but your communion with God is going to propel me through a dry season. It's so important, guys, that we run together as a pack. And if we do not, I'm just telling you, man, I've watched it. It's only a matter of time. I've seen the most fiery, zealous, miracle-working, prophetically gifted Christians. I've watched them bail after just a few years of getting outside of their community because they didn't have someone to spur them on in a dry season. Moses, dude, all it took was Moses going out and having a conversation with the Lord and everybody else was like, oh, I want that. Here's a second observation, and this is probably the most important because we're going to see this in each passage. Moses was God's friend and God was his friend. 
Moses was God's friend and God was his friend. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now this is a remarkable verse. At first glance, you may not get it, but oh, because see, you have to understand something. And if you've been with us since the Genesis series, you, you're really going to see this narrative come full circle. But from the very beginning, God has always desired a people and a place. He's always desired to dwell with his people and that he would freely choose and freely love a group of people that would freely choose and freely love him back. That's what this whole thing is about. We call it the divine romance. It's about closeness. It's about intimacy. It's why I will fight to the death on the theological principle of free will. Because it's not true love if I don't get a choice. Adam and Eve, they had a choice. And God asked of them to choose him. God desired him. God desired Adam and Eve to choose God, to freely love and to freely choose God. He wants a people who will freely love him, who will freely choose him in the same way that he has done that for us. And you see it in the garden. And then you see that he's been working this master plan with Abraham and with Isaac and, and, and Jacob and with Joseph. And now with Israel, he's finally got back what was lost in Eden. He has a people and he's getting ready to take them to a place. And he's so excited because he's like, hey, listen, all I want to do is be with the people who love me, who I love. And I want that relationship with a nation, with a group of people to spread across the entire earth so that the entire earth would be my dwelling place and the entire earth would be filled with my people. And that's the whole narrative, Genesis to Revelation. That's where this whole thing is going. But here, that's what he's wanted, right? This is what God has always wanted. And Moses is the first one to do it since the fall. Look at the way that it describes Moses' conversation with the Lord as a friend speaks with a friend. Moses used to meet with God face to face and God, it says that God speaks to him as a man speaks to his friend. It speaks to closeness. It speaks to intimacy. It doesn't say as a father speaks to a son or as a king speaks to his general or as a Lord speaks to his subject. Though all of those things are true, in this moment what we see is that God in Moses' relationship was not one of father-son, wasn't even one as much as Lord and subject. It was friend to friend. And it's remarkable because here's the thing. Uh, his kingship, it speaks to his unstoppable sovereignty Seeing him as Lord speaks to his unmatched authority. Seeing him as Father speaks about his unfailing love. But his friendship speaks to his unfaltering enjoyment. Father speaks about love. King speaks about sovereignty. Lord speaks about authority. But friend speaks about enjoyment. And what we see right here is that Moses is enjoying God as a friend enjoys a friend, and God is enjoying Moses as a friend enjoys a friend. There's a level of mutual satisfaction that is happening. Now, here's the deal. God is always satisfied in himself, absolutely. Yet, the man who is completely satisfied in the Trinity, the God who's completely satisfied in himself, still says, I desire a people and a place. And Moses, guys, I'm telling you, he gets this. And not only does he get this, I'm convinced he's the only one so far in the narrative of the Bible who has gotten this. You see, because everyone else, though they knew God, Though they trusted God, they looked to God for provision and for direction. Go look at Abraham. Go look at Isaac. Go look at Jacob. Go look at Joseph. And look at the way that they pray and look at the way that they commune with God. They are constantly looking for provision and they're looking for direction. And Moses is not looking for provision and he's not looking for direction. He's looking for friendship. And it's absolutely fascinating 
It's fascinating because every other time that you see Moses go up the mountain to ask for provision or to ask for um, uh, direction, he's never doing it on behalf of himself. Here's what's interesting. If you go back, if you remember our series, what you find is that when God or when Moses starts to pray, okay, where are we going? And we need provision, we need manna. It's always on behalf of the people who were panicking and going, we don't know what's gonna happen. And Moses immediately declares before even talking to God, it's okay, guys, God's gonna take care of us. And then goes up the mountain. He's like, hey, the people are saying this. What do you want me to tell him? And he's like, tell him I'm gonna provide manna. Tell him I'm gonna provide quail. Tell him I'm gonna provide water. See, everybody else was looking to God primarily for provision and direction. Moses assumed provision and direction, but pursued friendship. That's the thing that sets Moses apart more than anything else. And you can say, well, Casey, wait a second, you're making a big deal out of one verse that says face-to-face as a man meets the friend. I get that, but here's the deal. I'm getting ready to prove to you why all of 33 and 34 demonstrate this very fact. Because in just a moment, we're gonna get to the place where Moses prays for God's presence. And he says this, he goes, God, if if you're not going to be with us, then I don't want to go anywhere. You know, the first person to pray for the presence of God was Moses. The first person to ask, to experience and be near to God was Moses. It wasn't Abraham. That doesn't mean that Abraham wasn't saved. Obviously not. Abraham trusted God. Abraham was looking for provision. He was looking for direction. And Abraham followed orders mostly pretty well. But Moses, Moses was his friend. Moses loved God for who he was, not for what he could get out of God. Moses didn't need all of the workings. He doesn't need the promised land. He just wants God. Moses doesn't need the promise. He doesn't overly care, it seems, about the provision. He doesn't care about his prophetic destiny. He just wants God. And it's remarkable and it's challenging and it's convicting because how often, guys, if we are completely honest, do we primarily look to God for provision and direction and secondarily friendship? How often do we mix it up and do we, do, we, do we pursue provision and direction and assume friendship when Moses does the opposite? Moses made it his life's mission to be as close to God as he could, to be as friendly with God as he could. And it seems like God enjoyed him back because it says that he would speak to Moses face to face as a man does with a friend. And it is absolutely encouraging because we've spent so many weeks talking about what a failure Moses is. And the truth of the matter is he can be simultaneously a failure and still be a friend of God. He can still meet with God, interact with God, be close with God in the midst of all of his immaturities, in the midst of all of his shortcomings, in the midst of his murder and his temper issue and his argumentative issues and all of those, the thing that made Moses stand apart was he ultimately just wanted God more than he wanted anything else. And he didn't care about all the circumstantial stuff. And God's like, okay, I'll deal with your immaturities. You have my heart. It's stunning. As a matter of fact, I'm confident, I'm pretty confident that the only other person, pretty confident, that the only other person uh, in the Old Testament who rivals this is King David. Because King David would be the other guy who goes, oh, one thing that I desire, your presence. I just want to be near your presence. I don't need provision and direction. I know that that's coming because you love me. I want you. One thing I desire of the Lord, that I may sit in, uh, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, that I may dwell in his house all the days of my life. That's Psalm 27. It's remarkable. And David is called a, man's after, a man after God's own heart. Dude, I'm telling you, David and Moses, they're, they're working on the same wavelength here. Moses was God's friend. Now, here's the thing about this. I, I think it's really interesting to me. This is kind of a random thought on this. That just because you have friendship with the Lord doesn't equal 
you're going to fulfill all of God's promises in your life. Because Moses is still very clearly God's friend. Okay, at the end of his life, I've already alluded to this a uh, hundred times, that Moses is not going to make it to the promised land, that he's going to have an issue. He's going to get angry again. He's going to lose self-control. He's going to disobey what God tells him to do. And it's going to be over. And God's going to go, I'm so sorry. You're not going to get to the promised land. You're going to die on a mountain overlooking the promised land. But here's what's really interesting. If you go look at the book of Jude, is even the book of Jude speaks to how God feels about Moses. And, and here's the deal. God fights the devil over Moses's actual body. If you go read the book of Jude. In other words, God was, Moses was so dear to God as a friend that he's going to war with a demon and over the devil, over Moses' actual body. It's remarkable. So here's what that tells me, that even though Moses died on the mountain, not having seen the promises of God, he still had God's friendship. And so here's what that means. You can be walking close with the Lord. You can have the heart of Moses, have the heart of David. You can, you can have a heart for God's presence and you guys can be good. There's no enmity. It's great. But that doesn't demand that you're going to make it into the promised land. Obedience still has to come. If you don't have obedience, you don't make it into the promised land. And what we see here is that even though Moses has some disobedience issues, even though Moses zigged when he should have zagged, even though Moses messes up all the time, God's like, I still love your heart and I still want to be near you because you're the one who gets it. You get that it's always been about communion. It's awesome. Now, that's not a license to be rebellious because something that's also worth noting about Moses is a lot of people are called obstinate in these last few chapters. Moses is never one of them. Moses has maturity issues. Moses has weaknesses. But at the end of the day, Moses is never called hard-hearted and he's never called rebellious. Only Israel is called hard-hearted and rebellious. And so it's not an excuse for rebellion. You don't get to be like, oh, I get to do whatever I want to do and then I get to have friendship with God and everything's good. It doesn't really work like that. But you are allowed immaturities. Now, by God's grace, we want you to get out of maturities or immaturities. I want to get out of immaturity. I want to get out of weakness best I can via the grace that the Holy Spirit offers me. But at the end of the day, your weaknesses don't disqualify you from friendship with God. Isn't that great? <clears throat> Let me give you one more point on that passage. One more observation, looking forward in the future that the very one who is going to lead the nation into the promised land was the one who refused to leave the tent of meeting. Remember the last, remember the last verse? I'll read it to you. <clears throat> oh, Lord help me. Maybe I won't read it to you if I can't find it. Whoop. Verse 11, thank you. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Joshua would be the one who leads the children of Israel into the promised land. And it's such a random throwaway little verse that actually has nothing to do with the rest of the text. It's like shoehorned in there. It's like you got Moses, you got the tent of meeting, you got the cloud and everyone's worshiping. And then it's almost like, and oh, by the way, um, there was this guy when Moses left, he just would stay. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's remarkable. And I'm personally convinced that it was this desire of Joshua to carry on friendship with God, to say, I only want God's presence. That was going to be the thing that qualified him and give him the faith for when he was one of the 10 spies and goes and seeks out the land to come back and go, no, God's with us. It was his faithfulness in his devotional time with the Lord. It was his faithfulness in his quiet time with the Lord that gave him the faith to take the land just a couple of years later. Joshua, the son of Nun, refused to leave the tent. <clears throat> okay, um, Exodus 33. Now we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Now, therefore, I pray you, if you have found favor in your sight, this is Moses talking to the Lord, let me know your ways that I may know you. I've quoted that passage a lot over this series. Let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. It's God's response. 
And then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? It's verses 13 through 16. So he has this tent of meeting experience. They continue their journey and Moses begins to pray. And he says, okay, Lord, here's the thing though. I don't want to go anywhere without you. I know you said you won't dwell in our midst, but you're here in the tent and and you're telling us to go to the promised land, but I don't want to go anywhere if you're not going to go with us. And here's the first observation. Moses' saving grace is that he didn't want to go anywhere that God wasn't. He says, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to be there. Now, here's what this means. Think about this in context. God had just told them, pack up your stuff. We're going to the promised land. What Moses is essentially saying is I don't care if you take me to the promised land. If you're not in the promised land, I don't want it. If you're not in the land of milk and honey, if you're not in the land of of great joy and pleasure and safety and comfort, then I'll forsake all of it because ultimately it's all about you, not what you can give me. And it's the first time that we see somebody praying just for God's presence, for no other reason. Lord, I just want you to be here with me. And I'm telling you guys, that is so, that is exactly what the Lord is asking. That's what we are as gatekeepers. Remember the gatekeeper message? The gatekeepers were the ones who, under the tabernacle of David, stewarded the presence of God and lived in the presence of God and did everything they could to make sure the presence of God and the fire of the altar did not go out. Gatekeepers were solely about the presence of God. And when we say the presence of God, what we're talking about here is this meta-narrative about God dwelling with his people and his people freely loving and choosing God back. And you see Moses is doing that same thing. He goes, listen, I don't want to go anywhere without you. I'd rather have the promise giver than the promise itself. And guys, I, I think that's the place that we have to get to so often. We love the Lord because of the things that he can give us. So often we follow God and we're really happy with God when he gives us all the things that we desire, but we have got to get to the place where ultimately at the end of the day, it's not about what he gives us, not that we forsake what he gives us because he's a good father and he wants to give us things because he loves us. But at the end of the day, we don't idolize those things. Those things only make us love the father more. They only make us love God more and they only drive us to intimacy, not idolatry. So the first observation about that passage is that Moses' saving grace was that he didn't want to be anywhere that God wasn't. Moses was committed to his friendship. But the second observation that I want to make about that passage is the thing that should distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian. The church from the world is first and foremost the presence of God. Did you catch the little thing that that he threw in there? Moses says this, is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? In other words, God, the thing that's going to set us apart from every other nation is your presence. Not our behavior, not our rituals, not our clothing, not our language. He says, the primary indicator that we are your people is that you're with us. And if you're not with us, then we're not your people. And that's a big deal because how many churches, how many Christians do we interact with? Do you interact with, have I interacted with, who show no indicator that the presence of God has been anywhere near them? We're either dead in our religious system or we're dead in our sin. How many times have you met the Christian who has absolutely no fruit of the Spirit, but they have the name of Christian on their face? They are not marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Instead, they're liars and slanderers and they're gossipers. They have an appearance of godliness, but they've denied its power. Okay, now that's us looking at them. How many, let's be real. Let's be honest. 
are we that person for somebody else? If I ask that same question to a different crowd of people, are one of you, am I going to come to their mind and go, yeah, man, gatekeepers, they're, they're those guys. They don't really carry the presence of the Lord. They don't really carry the fruits of the Spirit. And I don't know the answer to that. What I know is that it's not about us looking at other people. It really should be about us looking at ourselves. The primary thing that should set us apart, not just as gatekeepers, but as Christians, is that we actually carry the very presence of God where we go, not just theologically, not just conceptually, but actually manifest. That the kingdom of God is manifest where we go. Moses says, hey, the only way they're going to know that you are our God and we are your people is if your presence is with us. And if your presence isn't with us, then what are we doing? Okay, so I'm going to say the same thing. If his presence isn't with us at gatekeepers, then what are we doing? It is not about good sermons. It's not about good services. It's not about good food and having good relationships. At the end of the day, it's not even about our good behavior, guys. It's about this. Are we close and near to the person and presence of God? That's what we have to go after. We have to go after it at gatekeepers collectively. We have to go after it at Gate City collectively. But more importantly, we have to go after it individually. When people meet you, the goal should be that there's something different that distinguishes you from them. And they can't just simply say, well, that person's, that person's happy and nice. Because listen, the world has happy and nice. You can't be like, well, that, that person's got a really good work ethic. That's what sets them apart. The world has people with a really good work ethic. Everything about your behavior can be recreated in the world in a counterfeit way that it's not that it's not important. The thing that's going to separate you is that when you walk into your work, when you walk into your restaurant, wherever it is, right, and, and, and you're talking to somebody, they go, dang, I actually feel the presence of God. They may not have the language for it. They may just be like, dude, there's something weird about you. Yes. I'm drawn to you. I remember when I, uh, before I ever did ministry for a living, um, I really, I mean, I just, I mean, I just was saturated in the presence of God, not in like, <clears throat> that sounded very arrogant. I didn't mean to say it like that. I was a new Christian. And so I was constantly worshiping. I had worship music on in my headphones all the time. I was like the most zealous on fire person you've ever met in your life. I would not shut up about Jesus. My parents didn't want to talk to me. So many people didn't want to talk to me because I was like, Jesus, 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 right? I was constantly talking about the Lord, talking with the Lord. But here's what I always found is that anytime people were struggling, it didn't matter whether they didn't talk to me before, whether they said bad things about me before, I was the primary person that they would come to. Non-Christians. And they'd be like, man, I'm really struggling in my marriage. I'm like, dude, I'm 19. What the heck do I know about marriage? You're 40, Right? Man, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, like I, the, the gambit of problems, right? And they'd be like, I don't know. I just feel safe talking to you. Those are my personality. Have you met my, have you seen me? I'm like, my personality is not the most warm and inviting all the time. It was literally, it, I can only attribute it to, it must have been the presence of God. And I talked to many of you, you've had the same exact experiences. You go out into the world and people are drawn to you just because you have the presence of God. There's something about you that's different. And it, it can't be our morals. Now, our morals, listen, here's the deal. We stand on our morals. We stand on biblical truth. We, we, wanna, we want to behave like Jesus as an act of worship to Jesus. We want that. But at the end of the day, people do not care if you say crap or the S word. That is not going to be the thing that actually makes somebody go, man, I really want Jesus. But if you're carrying the presence of God, if when you pray for them, it's not like everybody else. That will do more for them than anything else. So Moses didn't want to go anywhere that God wasn't. And the primary thing that should distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian, the church from the world, is that we carry the presence of God. And again, oh, you can go theologically, everybody carries the presence of God. I get that. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody who's a Christian has the spirit dwelling within them? Absolutely. There's a whole different ball game when you have the spirit dwelling within you versus the spirit actually working through you, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? You guys, I'm not, I don't say that like, you know what I mean? Okay. Let's go to the next passage in uh, chapter 33, verses 17 through 23. We just ended in 16. The Lord says to Moses, I will do this thing which you have spoken. 
for you have found favor in my sight. In other words, I'll give you my presence. Um, And I have known you by name. Again, that speaks to familiarity and friendship. I've known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. First time it's been prayed. First time in the Bible that somebody said, I want to see you. Show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a, a place by me. It's not a spiritual place. It's a legit place. And he goes, and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I love this passage. Show me your glory. Um, raise your hand if you've ever heard the, t- the term Shekinah glory. Oh, my Pentecostal peeps. Okay. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to show you my biblical um, um, lack here. I always thought that, that that came from this passage. Show me your glory. Oh, Shekinah glory. Did you know Shekinah glory is not even in the Bible? Raise your hand if you did not know that until right now. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. It's a, it's a rabbinical term that um, the rabbis would use to describe God's presence dwelling with people in a manifest way, which is kind of like this. But this is a completely different word. God, Moses says, I want you to show me your glory. And the actual word, can't remember it in Hebrew, it's something like um, Chabad. And, and he says, it, it's, it's show me your essence and show me your abundance. In other words, I just want to see you, God. I want to know you. And here's what's interesting. Is this isn't the first time that Moses has seen this. It's the first time we've seen it in this form. But remember just a few chapters ago, he was literally on the mountain. And not only was he talking with God, getting the whole Ten Commandments, there was a whole nother scene where he's having that holy dinner party and he's in the throne room and God's sitting at the throne, sea of glass in front of him, and he's eating and drinking with God. So he has seen God and he goes, his response, oh, I got to see more of this. Seeing you once wasn't good enough. Seeing you twice wasn't good enough. I got, we did the mountain thing and I got, I got the marching orders. That wasn't good enough. I want to know you, God. And it's right after the declaration where he, where God says, you have found favor in my sight and I know your name. You see the friendship, the familiarity. You see the language played out in this passage. It's more than, well, God met with him face to face. as man meets with a friend. You see this, this theme of God being friends with Moses and Moses being friends with God. Here's the first observation. Number one, Moses wanted nothing more than to see God for who he was. And here's what that means. He was not content with hearing about who God was. He wanted to see who God was. Moses was not like the children of Israel who were content letting some other person experience God and then have them communicate it to the children of Israel. They were good with that. They were like, Moses, you go, you experience God, you see God, you talk to God, you come back, you tell us what he says. We're good with that. Moses wasn't like the nation of Israel. He wasn't like the children of Israel. Moses is like, I'm not content with somebody else experiencing God. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear about God. I want to see him. I don't care what you guys do. I want Jesus. And I'm so instructed in my own heart because how often are we comfortable and content with just hearing all about God and coming to church and learning about God and we never move beyond going, you know what? I don't want to hear about somebody else's experience with God. I really just want my own experience with God. Dude, I lived like this for years as a Christian because I didn't, I wasn't even sure if experiencing God was real and I was so afraid to get let down. And so I'd hear other people talk about this amazing encounter that they'd have with the Lord where everything changed for them. And I was like, I don't have that. I I got that when I got saved, but I don't really have the language for that. It was so long ago. Because I spent years 
just sitting in the audience, just being like hearing other people talk about their encounters with the Lord and their experiences, their very real manifest experiences with, with God and going, yeah, that sounds great. I'm excited about that. But never actually being moved towards, I want that and I'm going to go after that. But here's the thing. You can want it and not pursue it. Moses pursues it. Moses doesn't just be like, well, if it's the Lord's will to do it, he's going to do it in the altar. We'll just do it, whatever. Moses goes, show me your glory. I want to see you. And I'll give up any promise. I'll give up the promised land. I'll give up any pleasure. I'll give up any comfort. I do not care. I just want you. Nothing else. He pursues an encounter and an experience with God. And I love it because God doesn't say that's not for mere man. He doesn't say, I've already done this before, Moses. Come on, get with the program. He goes, oh, you have found favor in my sight. Oh, you're speaking my language, Moses. My heart's cry, you're fulfilling. He goes, oh, I'll show you my glory. He goes, I'll give you everything that you can handle. So he hides him in a rock. He puts his hand over Moses and he says, you get to see my backside, which I think is hilarious. Just think it's funny. It's a funny picture. We all get it. It's remarkable. The next observation I want to make about this passage is that God's response to this prayer of show me your glory is he says this, he goes, um, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. So God, imagine this. So Moses goes, show me your glory. And God's very next word is, okay, I'll let my goodness pass before you. Isn't that interesting? Because Moses didn't pray for, to see God's goodness, right? Moses prayed to see God's glory. And all the Pentecostals are like, we want the glory cloud. We want that thing that like hovers in here and we're all like, ah! right? That's what we're going after. God, show me your glory. Ah! We want the cloud. We want all that cool stuff. Now the cloud, the cool stuff, that's awesome, right? If God does manifest himself, I'm here for it. I don't care what it looks like, okay? I'm here for God being God. But here's what he says. He goes, show me your glory. And God's like, all right, I can't wait to show you my goodness. In other words, God's glory is his goodness. They're the same thing. God's essence is good. Listen to me. God is good. He's not the bad guy. He's not the villain. Jesus did not save you from God. He saved you from sin. God is good. And he says, I will show you my Goodness. Now get this. Okay, this is just, oh man, I love it. Let's look at the, let's look at the 34 verses 5 through 11. We're going to see the event take place. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, all right, here we go. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then he pivots. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So this is like, we're so desensitized to this because we hear this in church so often. Guys, this has never happened before, ever. This is the first time that God is not just giving his name, but his attributes. This is God not just introducing himself by position, but saying, here's my biography. Let me tell you a little bit about me. Let me let my goodness pass before you and I'm going to describe to you who I am, Moses, because if, you, if, if you're too caught up with seeing my glory, you may miss it, so you need to hear it too. Because here's the deal, faith comes by hearing, not just by seeing. And so this is what he says, compassionate, gracious, 
slow to anger. Some of you just need to hear that. He's very slow to anger. He is not like your dad who has a short fuse. He's not quick-tempered. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. That word loving kindness didn't exist in our English language, literally, until we had to translate it, translate the Bible into English. Loving kindness was a new word to describe this word. It's not just love. It's kind-hearted love. Think about the most kind person you've ever met in your life. Multiply it by infinity, and that's God. He's kind abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You literally see him declare the gospel in front of Moses for the very first time. I'm slow to anger and I love to forgive sin. Some of you just need to hear that. God's slow to anger and he's quick to forgive your sin. And then he pivots and he goes, by no means though will I not punish the guilty. I think it's really interesting because remember I said his goodness and his glory are the same thing? Well, apparently his justice and his goodness are the same thing too. Because he said, I'm gonna let my goodness pass before you. And as his goodness is passing before you, he says, not only am I slow to anger, gracious and compassionate, he goes, I will by no means forgive the guilty. So his justice, his goodness is all part of his glory. What does that mean? We love all of God, not just the good part. Not just the part that makes us feel good. We don't just champion the forgiveness of sins. We don't just champion the slow to anger. We champion who God is and who God is is just. And so here's the deal. He goes, he goes I will forgive your sin. And it's a foreshadow of the gospel. The entire law is a foreshadow of the gospel. I kind of alluded to that a few uh, weeks ago. But he says, for those, of the, for those who are not born under the gospel, for those who I have not forgiven their sin, those who do not love me, those who don't get this thing, Moses, like you do, he goes, I, he goes, I will punish them. I will punish sin. I hate sin. God hates sin, not because he hates you, but literally because he loves you. Sin destroys you. Sin comes after you. Sin makes war against you. Sin brings you death, pain, misery, and destruction. And so therefore, because God loves you so much, he hates the thing that hates you. He hates sin because I got to punish sin. It's the first time we see God introducing himself and his attributes. And the very first thing he says, it's almost like he's saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord God. The most important thing you need to know about me, Moses, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. Some of us just need to learn to take God at his word. And then we're going to finish up 34. This is um, 34 verses 28 through 35. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face had shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all of the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to him, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, that which he commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face would shine. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with God. So he has this crazy encounter where the Lord passes by, declares his attributes. Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining. So much so that the people look at him and go, we can't even look at you, Moses. You got to cover yourself. So Moses puts a veil and he starts talking to the people. And it says very specifically, I love this because it doesn't, it, there's no command given to him to do this. Moses goes in the tent of meeting and his natural instinct is to uncover the veil. Just him and God again. And he would go talk to the people and he'd cover the veil. 
right? You guys have ever heard this passage? I got two observations, one concerning Moses' shining face and one concerning his veiled face. Concerning the shining face, why did Moses' face shine? It's a very simple answer. We are who we behold. Moses was just with God. And so you know what Moses looked like? God. And some of you guys, man, you, you really, I get it, man. You struggle and you're like, you're, you're really struggling in your holiness battle. And you're, you, want so, you want so badly to walk like Jesus walked. You want so badly to live in a manner of the life worthy of the call of Christ on your life. And, and you're struggling every day. And you're going, okay, Lord, I want, I really want holiness. And I would just say, guys, that the, the, the key for holiness, according to the Bible, does not seem to be that you just try really, really hard. The key to holiness seems to be to behold God. Because we are who we behold. The Bible would say it like this, that, that, that one day we will behold God and when we see him, we will be like him. And so the key isn't just so much that you would try harder because that's just not going to work. The key is that you would get as close to God as long as possible, that you would stay in his presence. And I'm not just talking about like hanging out in the car and turning on some worship music. That's really good and that's awesome. God loves that. But there's something about just putting all of the stuff away, having a very attentive meeting where you're going to go and you're going to go, okay, nothing else matters except for you, God, and me right now. And we're just going to commune together and we're going to talk. And I'm not just going to pray for provision and direction. I'm going to tell you all about myself. He's unveiled before the Lord. He's unveiled before the Lord. Here's the thing about that. That speaks to intimacy. That means that when Moses goes in the tent of meeting, he wants to be fully known. He wants to hide nothing. Now, how many of us can say that when we go into the presence of God, that that's our chief desire? I want to be fully known. I don't want to hide anything, Lord. Usually it's quite the opposite, if we're honest. Usually it's like, all right, let's not talk about that thing. Gosh, Lord, I don't, that's really bad. Let's just, I'm forgiven. We'll just move on. But not Moses. Moses walks in. He goes, hey, any barrier, I'm taking it off. It's just you and me. I'm going to give you a principle. This is a really important principle for you to live by. Who here wants intimacy with the Lord? Raise your hand. Okay. Vulnerability produces intimacy. Doesn't matter if it's between you and Jesus, you and your girlfriend, you and your friend, you and somebody you shouldn't be vulnerable with. Vulnerability always produces intimacy. And one of the keys to having a close-knit, intimate relationship with the Lord is being unveiled. And just saying, like Hebrews says, Lord, I'll be laid bare before you. You get to see me, for you know me. And here's the deal, God knows all of your issues, but it's a completely different ballgame for God to know your issues, for you to know your issues, and for you guys to talk about it. It's not enough that he's sovereign and just knows everything. He has got to talk about it. To stand before the Lord, take the veil off and go, Lord, I just want to be with you and I want you to fully know me. I want to fully know you. I want nothing in between us, man. And that's what we're going for. The unveiled face. Vulnerability produces intimacy. But I want to, I want to point one more thing out about the veiled face. I think it's really important. Um, yet Moses would put the veil on with other people. In other words, he didn't walk around with an unveiled face going, I just want everyone to know me and to know everything about me. And we live in a, a culture where, where vulnerability is pushed very hard. You just need to be who you are. You need to let people know who you are. And now here's the thing. I'm just going to tell you who you are. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm a wretched sinner. You don't need me to take off the veil to tell you that. Okay? We're saved by grace. We're all sinners saved by grace. Here's the thing. I am all for vulnerability. You need to have actual people in your life that you are laid bare before like the Lord. You need to have real people in your life that know everything about you. But that needs to be a few people, not the whole world. Moses, when he would go out to his people, would put the veil back on. And we live, again, our culture really says this, that you guys need to be really vulnerable and honest with everybody. And I would just say this, vulnerability produces intimacy, and you're not supposed to have intimacy with every human being. You're actually supposed to live a little guarded, right? You're supposed to, it's okay. 
You don't need to know every little thing about me. I don't need to know every little thing about you. But guess what? Um, there are uh, a half a dozen people who know every little thing about me, rest assured. And the Lord knows every little thing about me. And that's okay. So if you're feeling this level of pressure of like, hey, okay, so we're doing discipleship groups. This is a great example. If you guys feel like well, we're doing discipleship groups, therefore I need to spill all of my stuff because I want to show that I'm committed and I'm all in. You don't have to be vulnerable to be all in. You don't have to. If you want to, I really hope that we're a safe place for that. Absolutely. And all of us, if anybody gets vulnerable at any given time, we should all be a safe place. It means we're not going to go start you know, throwing stuff, you know, gossiping and telling everybody about, you know, we're, okay, we're not doing that. But at the end of the day, the thing that mattered most to Moses was his vulnerability with the Lord. And ultimately, guys, you should not be more vulnerable with a person than you are with God. And I think that's ultimately the litmus test. If you guys find that you are more vulnerable with people than you are the Lord, and you've got a little backwards, that's okay. We're just going to readjust. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.